Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougal back on Coming Up for Air, sitting here with my co-host, Dominique Simone Levine. Hi, Dominique. How are you this morning? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. And Kayla Solomon. How are you doing, Kayla? I'm good. Good morning. So this morning's topic, Dominique, why don't you go ahead and introduce us to what we're going to be speaking about? We had a member write in about her situation at home. Her son recently sort of blew up at school in March. He had been struggling with oxycodone and he asked to come home. And so he did come home and she was able very craftily to get him onto Suboxone and seeing a therapist. So that was back in May, and she's very happy to have that piece of it under control for now, but she's very leery of it destabilizing, of it falling apart. Though she is asking us the question, what about cannabis he smokes every day, he uses every day? Do I start to do craft on the cannabis? So I have a quick question. Do you mean back in March she did that? Yes. Okay. We're at the end of May. So he's been three months, her son, who's a young adult, has been three months on Suboxone and Oxycodone, living at home, doing well. And so he's still using marijuana and she's trying to determine if she should start working on not smoking pot. Uh, addressing the marijuana. She, at, up to this point, and this is a very strategic piece of craft, when you have a multi-drug user, loved one, you can't do craft on all these different drugs that are being used in different settings, different times for different purposes, maybe boredom, maybe partying, right? So we suggest, and craft suggests that you pick the most harmful, the most dangerous, the most problematic, and, and go for that one and do what we train you to do in craft on that the most dangerous drug. It's a harm reduction approach, and it's one that allows the family to learn craft in a simpler way. You can't be responding by stepping away when you see use if your loved one is using oxys, cannabis, and benzos all the time. You, you just can't be clear what's going on when, at what point is he just about to use, using, coming down from using, withdrawing. And that's our definition of use periods. And when you see a use period, like in an afternoon, he comes home high, you would remove any rewards you had might have been planning, familial stuff in the afternoon, dinner, whatever. And you don't remove dinner as in, I'm never going to feed you again. You remove dinner as I, I might stick it in the fridge and not cook it. And you allow natural consequences. Well, he's going to blow off hockey and he was, you know, a very important game. He's going to feel terrible, but he's going to blow it off because he's so high. Well, we're just going to let him blow it off. And you remove yourself. So not a lot of words, just I see, okay, this is the way it is right now. I'm, I'm going to go shopping. I'll be back in a few hours, whatever. You just get out of there. That's what you would do. And that's what 
she did successfully with the oxycodone, but she normalized the pot. You know, he lit up a joint. She didn't say anything. So I don't, I don't know whether he was lighting up in the house or not, but the idea is you're not going to react in a crafty way. You're not going to respond in a way with the pot. And now she's saying, I've reduced the harm. The oxycodone and opiates are under control. Is it time to move in on the cannabis? I have some thoughts. <laughs> I think three months is not a lot of time. I think that it really depends on a lot of pieces of information. I do believe that pot, using cannabis, pot, whatever it is, marijuana, it can be an addiction. I've seen it. It can be. Someone can use pot in a way that it truly is an addiction. So it depends on what we're talking about here. So maybe the first point you're making is that she needs to do a functional analysis. Yeah. Give us a minute or two of what a functional analysis would have us gain from doing so on this question of cannabis. The first thing a functional analysis is going to do, well, it's going to help you figure out patterns. It's going to help you to determine, first off, what's going on before he is using that pot and what is the driving force of why is he even using pot to begin with? And there's so many factors involved in that. So yeah, absolutely go back to module three and start answering those questions in module three, trying to determine, well, what are the internal triggers? What are his thoughts and feelings? And then what are the external triggers as to why he is, what are the driving forces that's driving that particular behavior or smoking pot? Probably she would answer that. And I would answer as a person who has gone through this exact thing. He's smoking pot because he can't get high on the opiates. And while the Suboxone has been very helpful in reducing the cravings, it hasn't done anything for my overall general life goal of being high in the face of everything. So I still need to get high and pot is available. I'm used to it or I'm not used to it. In my case, I was not used to it, but I tried so hard to like pot because I was on Anabuse, Naltrexone. You know, I was on everything that was blocking things. So I couldn't drink and I couldn't use opiates. So I, my other drugs went up. And I would tell you that right now, Suboxone providers, and I've spent 15 years researching this with the local jail in Springfield. They don't pay much attention to cannabis on the, t on the urine screens. So you're not necessarily going to get any direction from them. Kayla. My thinking is that the most important thing about the functional analysis and all of this processing is looking at what problems it's causing. Because again, I always go back to the original question because you're always looking for is the use of this substance creating a problem? And that's the most important question here. Is it taking away his motivation? Is he using it as an alternative form of treatment so he's not actually doing treatment and dealing with his stuff? Is he in his room all the time? Is he spending an enormous amount of money on this and he doesn't have the money or it doesn't motivate him for a job? So it's like you want to really take it and look at what, What's the problem? Because like the one thing I've really come to these days is the only reason that somebody would even be interested in stopping something is if they perceive that there's a problem with it. And so you might think that there's a problem with it, but if they don't, then they're not going to stop. 
the most important factor here is if there's a problem, you address it from the problem situation, not the actual substance. You would in this case with Kraft, you would want to say, okay, clearly he's having problems, as you say, motivation. He's falling behind. He's not doing much of anything. And so in Kraft, you're going to go after the use and not necessarily the problem. The problem is, is his consequences. And you would try to allow those problems to continue as long as he's high. You wouldn't try and stop those problems once he's high. Those short-term consequences, you would actually address the use itself with craft and your response to him being high. So you are behaving in a classic behaviorist way of reinforcing non-use if he comes home not high and stepping away if he is high. I'm not arguing with that part of it. What I'm saying is that if he's coming home high, but he's highly accomplished and he's taking care of business, then it's not a problem. That's what I'm saying is that you need to make that assessment in your head is, is this causing a problem in his life? Then you address it. But if it's not causing a problem, you know, it's kind of like people who like go to work and they come back, they come home and they drink a glass of wine or two. You don't challenge them on that that after dinner wine, unless the wine is causing them to be argumentative or checked out or something like that. That's what I'm saying is look at what the behavior is so that you could even realize whether or not it's a problem or not. And I would also argue if that's the trigger, the trigger is because you're feeling that, well, he's on the Suboxone, now I've got him off of using opioids, the more dangerous of the substances. I would argue that he's not necessarily stable on not using opioids. If the whole reason why he's going and he's using the pot, it's to try and stay off of the opioids, that tells me that he's not completely stable off of opioids. And that probably needs to be more of continued to be the focus because that's the most dangerous of the two. But still keeping in mind, if your loved one is using pot and they're coming home and they're ridiculously high, you can still implement craft skills, you know, module six and module five, where if my loved one is really high off of smoking pot, I'm going to remove immediate rewards. I'm going to get out of the room because it's becoming a problem for me. Maybe my loved one doesn't see it yet. That's not their perception that the pot smoking or the using of edibles or whatever it is that they're doing isn't a problem for them because they're so focused on not using opioids. But I'm still going to do my craft skills. I'm still uh, too high for me. I'm going to remove myself. I'm not going to cook a beautiful dinner and sit down and and engage, I'm just going to be like, okay, well, dinner's in the fridge. I'm going to go and maybe tomorrow it'll be different and we can have dinner together, but I'm going to remove those immediate rewards. But I also think that as a family member, just because they're not using opioids in such a short period of time does not mean that the individual is stable off of opioids. It takes a while and a lot of effort on your loved one's part to have a large amount of time where they're not using opioids and they're getting maybe counseling or, and maybe the focus of mom or dad or the family member that's around that's trying to provide support, maybe the focus isn't trying to always get them off of 
something or get them off of the pot. But the focus has to be looking for those wishes or dips, right? Oh, I can't seem to get myself out of bed in the morning. I hear that. I Okay, I hear that that's a bit of a problem for you. Talk to me. It sounds like an opportunity to learn something about yourself. Do you think this is something you want might want to bring to your counselor? That way you're focusing more on getting those other supports in place that's going to help your loved one with difficult things that are going on in their lives and not so focused on, I've got to get them off the drugs. I've got to get them off the drugs. The other thing I had was thinking throughout this, and we wrote a response, it's publishing today on our on our member site, alliesinrecovery.net, and you can see the full response there is that the pot use, I've asked her in the response to say, is he smoking? Is he chewing edibles? Is he dabbing? And we've run a couple pieces recently on the member site that looks at dabbing as a, a way of smoking concentrated THC distillates. It looks like crack. It's actually crispy little like hard caramel. And folks are smoking it and getting much more THC into their systems than was ever really possible through smoking or, you know, eating 15 edibles or something. So it's a very dangerous practice. And it is so that families know to be aware of it. I asked this parent whether her son is dabbing because that for me raises the harm level of what's going on with the cannabis. It suggests that this is serious, gonna have serious motivational problems. There are cases of people going into psychotic breaks at these very high levels of THC. We don't know much about it, but we do know that THC, the dependence, the tolerance builds very quickly. And you can be at these astronomical levels of THC and have to somehow maintain that in order not, as Lori says, to fall into withdrawals, which are withdrawals we probably don't can't appreciate in our sort of classic use of smoking pot scenario because these THC levels are really, really high. So just a warning there that this is happening if you want to read more about dabbing, if you want to read more about the withdrawals from cannabis, both of those are recent pieces that we have up on our member site at alliesinrecovery.net. That's a really good way to, it's functional analysis is to look at the difference. You know, what are they doing? So you're observing you're really kind of observing and taking things apart so you can witness it and process it and kind of get a sense of what the concerns are, which is a really important way to start this process. I think the functional analysis is one of the most important parts of craft because it allows you to have awareness and pay attention to things you wouldn't necessarily notice before. And so as you could hear with this conversation, it winds up becoming this ongoing process. So it's like it starts out with the opiates and then the opiates have moved to a different state. And so then now you're looking at what's next. Are they doing cocaine? Are they doing cannabis? And you do a functional analysis on that and see what's the impact what are you noticing? What's the behavior? What are the rewards? What are the things that you could withdraw from the person when they are using? And again, if they're dabbing, they're going to be much more altered than if they're you know, smoking occasionally or smoking just to go to sleep. So that's what I love about this conversation. It's like, it's not so simple. It's not, oh, they're smoking pot. It's like, what's actually going on? And what's the level of altering that they're doing to themselves? 
And can I just say one more thing about pot use? And that is that like opiate use, you're not always high when you're smoking pot or, or taking an opiate. A lot of the time you're just getting yourself back up to functional maintenance level. And that's different than obliterated, right? When you come home and your eyes and everything looks like you've been, you're really jacked up on something. So even if you tell me my son smokes all the time, there's no way I can distinguish between moments when he's in the use category and moments when he's not, you know, because he's always using. I would say, tell me there aren't times where you just notice it. It's like he's so high. But there are many, many hours that people spend both on opiates and on cannabis where you will not see any sign of it. It'll be low maintenance or maintenance. And you can use that time and put it in the category of non-using. Right. So he's not crazy high right now. So he's at a moment where he's more functional and I'm going to reward that. I'm going to act like that is normal right now. I'm going to be attentive and loving now for that. And when he comes home really smashed, that's when I'm going to withdraw, take away rewards, allow natural consequences. I'm glad you bring this particular point up, Dominique. Helping family members identify in module three that you may be trying to find times of use, and we've outlined what those times of use are just before when you're probably not going to be able to stop or intervene in any way when they're actually using, and then immediately afterwards, like maybe a hangover or so those are times of use. But what's really important that some families get tripped up on on module three is they get very worried about having to have to draw a hard line. Are they using? Are they not using? I'm not sure. And that is not it. You do not have to draw a hard line. And if you make a mistake and you think someone is high when they're not, it's not a big deal if you, you know, don't serve dinner at the table. You're not doing, you're not removing immediate rewards to punish someone. You're removing immediate rewards so that you're not engaging with the person. So it's okay that if you're not quite getting it right, but you're starting to really look out for it and you're trying to become a little bit more in tune. And it's okay. Let's say your loved one is high and you, you're not sure. And then you go, oh, no, they're not high. So I'm going to reinforce and I'm going to spend time with this person. I'm going to, you know, give them a hug, this and that. And then all of a sudden you see a sign and it indicates to you, nope, they're high. Okay. Then you just switch gears. Oh, okay. I'm going to get out of here. Bye. So don't get tripped up in, I've got to absolutely, they've either got to be in that using time or not in that using time. It's a little bit looser than that. And it's just kind of gauging. Are they high? Are they not high? And I actually would specify that even a little more. And I would say you do want to be 100% in the camp of he's either high or he's not. But that's because of your response and how you have to behave. But in your head, you're only 70% sure or 60% sure, whatever your, your level is of evaluation. You've got to make a decision one way or the other which camp he's in. But it has to be based on your functional analysis. I did it and I see that all the triggers were in place. He's late. It's payday at the timing that this everything tells me that this man is going to walk through the door high. And so I'm going to behave. I'm getting ready to behave like he's high. Now I'm going to look for it. I'm going to make sure I'm as correct as I can be without asking, 
because you know what happens when you ask you defend you deny i have a right to use get out of my life you're always on me on this right so that's not useful you're just going to you're going to come up with your informed opinion your informed guess you're going to respond 100% and either he is or he's not using until evidence to the contrary and that your evidence in your head right you're not smelling him or maybe you are but you know not so that he knows you're smelling him. <laughs> but, but I would add to that, that we want to set it up so you're not doing the pronouncement thing. Well, I know you're high now. That's the other thing. That's the question. Are you high or you don't look good or whatever people do, like all of our euphemisms for high. Your eyes look red, whatever. It's like, that's not what we're talking about. Do not engage in that conversation. It's more that you're in the observer position. You're noticing you're basically doing this evaluation with yourself to see what the story is, because you do know a lot more than you think, you know. So the two things, no questions and no pronouncements like I'm leaving because you're high or I know you're high. So no, 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 no. It's this subtle, just like, oh, I have to. I, there's some things I need to do. I'm going to go. What the reward system is about is the more often you do it the person unconsciously is going to know that that's what you're reacting to. That's the point is that you're looking at for unconscious cues and they already are picking up unconscious cues so that you're just going to operate so that hopefully one day they'll notice that there's this pattern that you're doing, which is when they are high, you are not there. Excellent. Thank you all. Kayla, you want to try summarizing? Can I just say one thing before we go? I want to let our listeners know that we are running a special on the Allies in Recovery website. If you go and you complete half of the modules in a 10-day period, you have the opportunity to take a $250 training, a five-hour training. And Kayla, you want to you talk about immersion, right? It's an immersive training. And maybe you want to comment on the benefits of that and then maybe give us a summary. So my belief about immersion is it's the number one way to learn something, especially if you've checked out the modules. When you come to this training, you will have an opportunity to practice, to notice to use a different part of your brain to actually integrate it. And any kind of immersive experience allows you to integrate it differently. So it's basically like speeding up your knowledge base and your experience with this. Even if you've been doing this for a long time, I think that this training is a really worthy opportunity to take it to another level, which is what we're all looking for. It's like you start out, you're trying to learn things. This is a great way to do it. So I, I highly recommend it. I think it's a great way to learn. And especially if you prepare by doing the modules in advance, it's exponential learning and integration. And so for today's, today's summary, basically what we're talking about is how we're looking at harm reduction. And we're, we, we did a lot of different things today, but basically what's happening is we're looking at the functional analysis so that you're constantly reviewing what's changed, what the patterns are, what the dynamics are, and what role you could take on this. So even if somebody is multi-substance use, you're going to be doing one at a time. So, so that functional analysis needs to keep happening with the different drugs as time goes on so that you know which behaviors to reward and which ones to walk away from. The other thing is that we did talk about the role of pot and 
there's great, great resources on the site with cannabis to learn about withdrawal, to learn about tolerance, and also um, to see how, for example, dabbing is a more concentrated version of it so that you can learn more about this. So as you're deciding what behavior you're going to do, you'll have more information on that. But basically, once again, it's about us looking at what our role is in this dynamic so that you're stepping back, you're watching, and you're doing behaviors that actually support the reduction of the use and do not encourage the using of it, but not in a very direct way. This is subtle. And so the more you know, the more subtle you realize this process is, the more effective you're going to be. Great. Thank you. Bye, ladies. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.